recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, March 13th, I believe, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I'm sorry I've been distracted. That's why we started a few minutes late. Since um, yesterday afternoon, Christogania has been suffering denial of service attacks. I still don't have it all sorted out. We have um, 400 megabytes of log pile since yesterday, and, and um, probably at least that many requests to the server and page views. We're, um, we're on a, a, a DNS service that is supposed to mitigate most of that, and it does, but this is still managing to bring our databases to a crawl and inhibit our traffic somewhat. Yesterday, there were uh, 18,000 media files downloaded from Christigenia on a day when there's usually two to 3,000. So that might give you some gravity of, of the size of the attack, 15,000 extra media files. I don't think that that's um, all from people that want to listen to our podcasts. Well, last week I had spammed um, T-shirts, Christianity T-shirts, coffee mugs, things like that, that we're making available to help um, advertise our message and, of course, to help support our work to some extent. I, I don't think it's going to do much of that, but every little bit helps. Um, this week it's going to be CDs. Well, we had put up two CDs back in Bristol before we moved, um, the, the series on the book of Acts and the series on the book of Amos. And they've sold, well, very modestly, but we're still going to keep continue making things available for the purpose of um, not only people that want to have a library of our material of their own, but people that want to use tools to evangelize this Christian identity message. So we made four CDs available Tuesday, the, um, a two-disc, two-CD set of our Roman series, 21 podcasts, and also a collection of podcasts from 2013 and, and um, National Socialist, Germany, and, and related topics, the Mein Kampf Project podcasts, I call them. Several of the minor prophets on another CD and a fourth CD of miscellaneous topics, programs I did with Clifton Amheiser, that the um, some two seed line related topics such as the two programs on the older King James Center reference from Clifton's papers, things like that, they might be found to be worthwhile. All of the CDs also come with all of the um, word processor files for our written notes and, and the word processor software is open office and it's freely available online, but I believe that Microsoft WordPad now opens most of those files, so that shouldn't be a problem. The software is pretty much universal. I'm going to um, 
do my best, Yahweh willing, to make four more CDs available next week. It actually takes time to construct a CD, at least a little bit, an hour or so. So um, I'm hoping to have the two C-line series, or at least most of it, Pragmatic Genesis and the portions on the non-Adamic races in Scripture and Eschatology on a CD, along with sons or bastards and other related programs. So that's coming soon. Now we can get down to business. Here tonight we will present the epistles of of Paul, Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians, part three of our presentation of this epistle. It's subtitled, The Old Testament is Only for Christians. We thought to um, subtitle it after the, um, the tabernacle theme, which is going to dominate the second part of this um of this podcast and and the fact that the Adamic body is merely a tabernacle for the spirit of God within us and um that's okay one subtitle per podcast is plenty the old testament is only for christians that would surprise a lot of Judeo-Christians, of course, because their entire worldview, their entire paradigm concerning Scripture is confused. That's because they worship the Jews and not Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we saw Paul of Tarsus change the subject of his second epistle to the Corinthians away from the grief within the assembly at Corinth. Doing that, he turned to discuss the service of the new covenant in the spirit of Christ, as opposed to the service of the old covenant in the letter of the law. It must be noticed that in the course of that discussion, Paul refutes several of the claims which are commonly made by the modern denominational sects concerning both Jews and Christianity. For instance, we often hear it repeated that the New Testament alone is for Christians, while the Old Testament is for the so-called Jews. Yet, in that chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul had explained that there is a veil, or literally a cover, over the Old Testament, and that it cannot properly be understood unless one turns to Christ, which is when the veil is lifted. With that statement, Paul is stating unequivocally that the New Testament is for Christians and that it is not at all for the so-called Jews. If the book, metaphorically, 
has a cover on it until we turn to Christ, then the book is an exclusively Christian book. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, of those who rejected Christ, that until this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies upon their hearts. And then he says of those who accepted Christ in verse 16, but when perhaps you should turn to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So the Old Testament is not for the so-called Jews. And the Jews are blinded as to its meaning. Rather, the Old Testament is only for Christians. Because when you turn to Christ, the veil is taken away. Only those who have turned to Christ have the ability to understand the Old Testament. And without Christ, it is left unemployed. Therefore, Paul of Tarsus refutes the idea of the quote-unquote New Testament Christian. That idea is a poor excuse for the so-called Jews, and it is a false theology which was long ago refuted by those early Christians who withstood the Marcionites. The Marcionites were the first quote-unquote New Testament scriptures, and they were also dead wrong. Instead, as Paul told the Romans in chapter 15 of his epistle to them, now whatever things have been written before have been written for our instruction so that through patient endurance and the calling of the writings, we may have expectation. Making such a statement, Paul was referring to the scriptures of the Old Testament. It is the Christian obligation to examine the Old Testament as well as the New and to accept both old and new as one faith. That was also the original meaning of the term Catholic. The term Catholic comes from two Greek words meaning down, whole, or according to the entirety or the whole, meaning that the Jews rejected the gospel of Christ and clung to the Old Testament. The Marcionites rejected the Old Testament and clung to the parts of the gospel that they preferred that didn't really talk about the Old Testament. And the original meaning of the term Catholic was the 
true Christian perspective and the understanding of Moses and the prophets that the Old Testament and the New Testament were one faith and were both to be accepted as part of that faith. Later on, the word Catholic was corrupted into its medieval definition of universal. But that is not how it was used up until the time of Eusebius in the 4th century. And it was used several times by the time of Eusebius. Therefore, according to Paul of Tarsus, all denominational sects are wrong about the Old Testament. It's not a book for the Jews. It's a book for the Christians. And Paul's simple words have been laying in plain sight right in front of their faces since the printing press was invented nearly 600 years ago, but they have still not understood them. Now, we shall commence with 2 Corinthians from the beginning of chapter 4. For this reason, having this service, just as we have received mercy, we do not falter. The service which Paul refers to here is the service of the Spirit mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8. Paul had told the Corinthians in verse 3 of that chapter, You are Christ's letter ministered to by us, having been inscribed, not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living Yahweh not on tablets of stone, but on fleshly tablets of heart. And then Paul proceeded in verse 7 of the chapter to contrast that with the service of death in letters being engraved in stones. So there was at one time a service of the letter of the law upon which the old covenant was based, engraved in stone tablets. And now there is a service of the spirit of the law on which the new covenant is based, engraved in fleshly tablets of heart. The old service in the letter of the law is left unemployed in Christ, as Paul describes in the later verses of that same chapter. Therefore, according to the Christian gospel, there is no valid foundation whatsoever in the continuation of Judaism. It is not a valid religion. As Christ himself had said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Judaism cannot be accepted by Christians as a valid religion 
or the Christians who do so cannot truly be Christians. They must be converso Jews or stuck on stupid. In addition to his understanding of the gospel, Paul has had Paul has an Old Testament authority by which he said these things, which he later quotes in his epistle to the Hebrews, and which is found in Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, none of whom are Jews. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying no Yahweh for they shall all know me from the least of them under the greatest of them, saith Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. The new covenant was a matter of prophecy, and it was to be made with the same children of Israel that the old covenant was made with. This new covenant was also prophesied, in Ezekiel chapter 37, where the word of God says, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. The laws of Yahweh their God will be written on their hearts, on the hearts of the children of Israel, rather than upon tablets of stone. The fulfillment of these promises is the announcement of the gospel and the basis of the ministry of Paul of Tarsus. He is teaching that fulfillment here in 2 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4, just as he had taught it in diverse ways in 1 Corinthians and in his epistle to the Romans, and as we shall see in practically all of his other epistles. Every descendant of the children of Israel spread across the nations of Europe eventually heard the gospel. They heard that gospel according to the teaching of Paul of Tarsus. Soon, they had all learned of their reconciliation to God through Jesus their Lord in accordance with the words of Jeremiah. 
that they all shall know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, meaning Israel. The only Christian paradigm which can account for the worldview which Paul of Tarsus reflects in his epistles is Christian identity. Where Paul says, just as we receive mercy, we must also ask who he is talking to and why he can make such a statement as he made here. This is important because where Paul says other things, he can be easily perceived as being in contradiction with himself by those who do not understand Christian identity. The children of Israel required mercy because they had violated the law of Yahweh their God, and they were being punished for that violation. As it also says in that very same chapter promising a new covenant, in Jeremiah chapter 31, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness. Even Israel, when I went to, to cause him to rest, the mercy of Yahweh God for Israel was a constant theme in the prophets, and especially in Hosea and in Isaiah, when the children of Israel were alienated from their God, they were punished without mercy. However, that same God, through his prophets, promised them reconciliation and mercy in the future. And Yahweh says in Hosea chapter 2, speaking again of the children of Israel, and I will sow her unto me in the earth. That's the meaning of the word Jezreel. And I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. That's the meaning of the name Loruhama. And I will say to them, which were not my people, that's the meaning of the name Loami. Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. All of these things refer exclusively to those cast off low on me. You are not my people, those cast off children of Israel. And along with the Old Covenant, they can only be properly understood, as Paul explains, of the Law of Moses and the Old Covenant in chapter 3 here. They can only properly be understood by Israelites who have turned to Christ. That is because when the children of Israel turn to Christ, as Paul says, that is when the veil is lifted. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul explains that his ministry is a ministry of reconciliation for this very reason. For now, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. Just as we receive mercy, we do not falter having this service, the service of the law written in the fleshly tablets of heart. And Paul says in verse 2, Rather, we renounce the covers of disgrace, not walking in villainy, nor disguising the word of Yahweh, but in the manifestation of truth, establishing ourselves against all consciences of men in the presence of Yahweh. And we will see that there's a, um, a valid alternate translation to that last phrase. As Paul has explained elsewhere, such as at the end of Romans chapter 3, Christians should seek to establish the law of Yahweh their God as a result of their faith in Christ. However, in his epistle to the Galatians, Paul had refuted the Judaizers who sought to keep men tied to the letter of the law in the rituals. In chapter 2, where he wrote, and that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ, that they might bring us into bondage. The difference between keeping the spirit of the law and realizing that Christ is our propitiation, rather than keeping the letter of the law and thinking that we ourselves could make propitiation for our sins through the works of the law. Here in chapter 3 of this epistle, according to the King James Version, Paul had said, Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But here, once again, he beckons men to renounce sin rather than engage in it. Peter spoke in the same manner in the second chapter of his first epistle where he wrote, For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness. Israel will not be judged by the law. They will be judged with mercy. But we shouldn't use that liberty for a cloak of maliciousness. But as the servants of God, likewise James also beckoned Christians to obedience in Christ. In the first chapter of his epistle where he said, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, 
and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. And then in verse 25, he says, But whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty, and continues therein, he, being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. James, writing to thee, twelve tribes scattered abroad, and referring to the engrafted word, is also referring to Jeremiah chapter 31. And the law which Yahweh had promised to inscribe on the hearts of the children of Israel. Translating this passage, that last clause, establishing ourselves against all consciences of men in the presence of Yahweh. Whether that preposition pros is interpreted as against, as it is here, or as to, as it is in most other translations, is the opinion of the translator. The verb, sunisteo, may have been rendered as introducing, and it is in our translation of the beginning of chapter 3 of this epistle, where Paul asks if we should introduce ourselves to you anew or receive introductions from you. They're forms of the same verb, which here is translated as establishing, and the word may bear either sense. The verb may have been rendered as introducing. Therefore, we can relate this passage to Paul's statements in a literary sense at the beginning of chapter 3. And this clause may have been read rather than establishing ourselves against all consciences of men. This clause may have been read as introducing ourselves to all consciences of men or every conscience of men. Either reading is correct. It's the translator's opinion based on what he believes the context to be. We chose, when translating this passage, to instead reflect the sense wherein Paul was also making a reference to the adverse effect which the gospel has before the world. So we chose not the context of what proceeds in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, but the context of what follows here in verse 3. And we shall see that that also is in context with the way we translated this statement. Where Paul says, And if then our good message is covered by those being destroyed, it is covered. Here the verb for cover is from a form of the noun, which is translated as veil in chapter 3, which is literally a cover, but which we chose and, and which um, 
manner the Greeks did use the term, the veil as a cover for the face, they called that a columna, and, and a columna is a veil or a cover. It's from the same verb, calupto, here, which means to cover, or in the passive, is covered, or to be covered. That's the same verb which gives us the word apocalypto, which is to reveal or to take the cover off, and the word apocalypse, which is an uncovering or a revelation. So Paul here is making a play on words, which also informs us more fully of what he had meant in chapter 3 of this epistle, speaking about the veil or cover which lies over the, the heart when the Old Testament is read, or we could say which lies over the Old Covenant, and which is only understood in Christ to cover the meaning or message of something is not necessarily to hide it, but also to obfuscate or conceal its true interpretation or application. Paul explains the reason for the division in Judea reflected in the New Testament. Paul explains that in Romans chapter 9, where he attests that not everyone in Israel is of Israel, and compares Jacob and Esau. Paul calls the Israelites vessels of mercy, and Paul calls the Edomites vessels of destruction. This explanation accords with the historical testimony of Flavius Josephus, who informs us several times in Book 13 of his Antiquities of the Judean that the Judeans under the Maccabees had converted many cities of the Edomites to Judaism and that thereafter they were circumcised and were considered full and equal citizens with the original Judeans who were Israelites. This also accords with the words of Christ in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 where he refers to those who say they are Judeans and are not but are of the synagogue of Satan. Likewise, Christ had said to his adversaries, as it is recorded in John 10.26, that you believe not, because you are not my sheep, as I said unto you. Ever since the ministry of Christ began, the enemies of Christ, who Paul considers those being destroyed, have endeavored to obscure the gospel. The denominational sects of today, they don't understand these things which Paul is saying here. They don't understand either the new covenant or the old because they follow the so-called Jews rather 
than following Christ. If we read between the words, if we read between the lines here in Paul's explanation in these chapters, 3 and 4 of 2 Corinthians, Paul is basically telling us that the Jews do not understand the Old Testament because it's covered. The Old Testament is a Christian book. Only Christians turn to Christ. Only the children of Israel turn to Christ can understand the Old Testament. Therefore, why should Christians ever get their religion or interpretations of anything in the Old Testament from the Jews. The Jews are blinded to the Old Testament, according to Paul of Tarsus, and according to anyone who actually reads the prophets and has any common sense whatsoever. Paul goes on to say, of this covering of the gospel, those who would destroy it, those who are being destroyed, by whom the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, for not to shine the light of the good message of the honor of the anointed, who are the image of Yahweh, and we will explain why that last clause does not refer to Christ personally, but does indeed refer to the children of Israel. The Greek word for God here is the word theos. When we encountered the word theos while translating the Christogenia New Testament, nearly everywhere where it refers to the Creator, to the God of Israel, we wrote the transliterated word Yahweh, rather than the English title God. We call the word Yahweh a transliterated word because for us it represents what is called the Tetragrammaton. The Tetragrammaton, the four Hebrew letters representing a word which we consider to be an appellative description employed as a name for God and not properly a name by itself in the English sense of the term. English names don't necessarily have any meaning at all. In Hebrew, the Tetragrammaton is employed as a name, and it is clear throughout the Old Testament that most Hebrew names, if not all, were actually appellations, meaning that they were words or phrases that had a definite meaning in the language, and they were used as names. That describes practically every Hebrew name. Therefore, in Hebrew, Yahweh is an appellative, but it is also a name. We should have that same understanding when we use the term in English. And in the case of the Hebrew form 
the word for Yahweh, since it most likely means the one who is, and therefore the eternal one. It can only accurately describe the one true God. Of course, we have been criticized for this. However, to Christians, if Yahweh is God, then we should have no problem making the association, and we shall continue to do so in spite of our critics. And we have long hoped one day to make a separate audio presentation devoted to the reasons why we insist upon using that name and to defending against such criticism. Yahweh willing, we will do that one day soon. <laughs> that this, um, it, it makes me laugh. All of the contention, even amongst identity Christians concerning this name, and how it could possibly be despised by people claiming to be Christians. I don't expect all identity Christians to have the same understanding. Therefore, I do not condemn people who choose not to use the name. I wish they would, but I don't condemn them. I think it's amazing that certain identity Christians have the audacity to condemn those who do use it. Paul's reference to the God of this age is a sarcastic one. Christ called his adversaries, who were rulers and authorities in Judea, the prince of this world. He must have, in spite of some of the popular insistences, he must have used the singular term in a collective manner because he had said in John chapter 12, now is the judgment of this world, now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. Saying that, he could not have been referring to a singular event or to a singular individual, but to a process which would unfold throughout history, future to his own time, which is later described in the Revelation. And to a collective of individuals. If he had meant now, in the immediate sense, now is the prince of this world cast out, then Paul could not have written 25 years later in chapter 2 of his first epistle to the Corinthians of the princes of this world. As the devil on a mountain had said to Christ, all this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, meaning 
the nations of the Oikumene. For that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will or I wish, I will give it. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that the son of perdition was sitting in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Both Yahshua Christ, speaking of the prince of this world in John chapters 12, 14, and 16, and Paul later in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, could only have been referring to the Edomite Jews. In reference to the light of the good message of the honor of the anointed, who are the image of Yahweh, the translation of this clause is a matter of biblical perspective. The King James Version translation is literally acceptable, but did Paul really mean to refer to Christ? Or was he referring to his people? And if Paul was referring to Christ alone, then why would he immediately state in the very next passage, in in verse 5, that we do not proclaim ourselves as if there may be some confusion over who he was referring to. Indeed, here Paul refers to the collective body of Christ as those who were predestined to be conformed to the image of God, Romans 8.29. And Paul clarifies his intention in the passage which follows here in verse 5. And he says, We do not proclaim ourselves, but Prince Yahshua Christ, and of ourselves, your bondmen for the sake of Yahshua. Because Yahweh, speaking out of darkness, shines forth light, which has shone in our hearts for illumination of the knowledge of the honor of Yahweh in the person of Yahshua Christ. The good message of the honor of the anointed is the good news of the reconciliation of the children of Israel to Yahweh their God. Yahshua Christ, Yahweh incarnate in the flesh, is the light to come into the world for the benefit of the same children of Israel. Yahshua Christ is the light. And he is not merely the recipient of the light. Rather, the people of Israel are the intended recipients of the light, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 2, where we also see that they are the intended recipients of the honor. 
from verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, expecting the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it was forewarned to him by the Holy Spirit not to see death before he should see the anointed prince. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And in there, being introduced to the parents of the child, Yahshua, upon their doing that which is according to the custom of the law concerning him, then he took him into his arms and praised Yahweh. And it said, Now release your servant, Master, in peace according to your word. Because my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in front of all the people, a light for the revelation of the nation and honor of your people Israel. This is the light, and this is the honor of which Paul speaks here in verse 5. I'm sorry, in verse 4. Now we have this treasure in earthen vessels, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Now we have this treasure in earthen vessels in order that the greatness of the power would be of Yahweh and not from us. The treasure in earthen vessels is the true life of the Adamic man invested into his body by the Spirit of Yahweh God. Paul spoke of the spiritual Adamic body in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he said that, in verse 42, in this way also is the restoration of the dead. It is sown in decay, meaning the physical body. It is raised in incorruption, the spiritual body. It is sown in honor, I'm sorry, in dishonor, the physical body. It is raised in honor, the spiritual body. It is sown in weakness, the physical body. It is raised in power, the spiritual body. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual. And just as it is written, the first man, Adam, came into a living soul, the last Adam into a life-producing spirit. The two natures of the Adamic man, Paul is using them as an analogy or is using, I'm sorry, Adam and Christ as an analogy for those two natures. But the spiritual was not first, rather the natural, then the spiritual. The first man from out of earth, 
of soil, the second man from out of heaven, the natural and the spiritual. As he of soil, such as those who are of soil. And as he in heaven, such as those who are in heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of that of soil, we shall also bear the likeness of that of heaven. Isaiah referred to the same spirit within the natural Adamic body in much the same way as Paul does here. In Isaiah chapter 52, where the word of Yahweh had said to the prophet, speaking again to the children of Israel, Depart ye, depart ye, go ye out from thence, touch no unclean, go ye out of the midst of her, be ye clean that bear the vessels of Yahweh. Those in Isaiah who bear the vessels of Yahweh are those children of Israel who had the spirit which Yahweh had imparted to Adam. They were commanded to separate themselves from the unclean. And we will discuss that passage at length, Yahweh willing, when we present it as Paul cites it in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. From the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2, which I've quoted quite often this past year. For God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. If we are Adamic men in the flesh, we have the image of Yahweh God in his spirit which is within us. And through that spirit, we have eternal life. Paul continues in verse 8, being oppressed in every way, but not crushed, being without means, but not destitute, being persecuted, but not abandoned, being cast down, but not destroyed, at all times bearing about the death of Yahshua in the body in order that also the life of Yahshua in our body may be manifested, that same Adamic spirit which we already have in us. Paul's words do not apply to himself only, but also to the children of Israel in general. I'm sorry. The children of Israel who were destined to be punished for an appointed time because they had rejected Yahweh their God. As it says in Amos 3.2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together except they be agreed? So the children of Israel would be punished into agreement with Yahweh. From Hosea chapter 12, from verse 2. Yahweh has also a controversy with Judah and will punish Jacob 
according to his ways. According to his doings, he will recompense him. From Jeremiah chapter 30. Therefore fear not, O my servant Jacob, saith Yahweh. Neither be dismayed, O Israel. For lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee, though I make a full end of all the nations where I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure. Israel will be punished into obedience and will not leave thee <clears throat> altogether unpunished. For thus saith Yahweh, thy bruise is incurable, and thy wound is grievous. There is none to plead thy cause, that thou mayest be bound up. Thou hast no healing medicines. All thy lovers have forgotten thee, they seek thee not. For I have wounded thee with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one. For the multitude of thine iniquity, because thy sins were increased. Why criest thou for thy affliction? Thy sorrow is incurable for the multitude of thine iniquity. Because thy sins were increased, I have done these things unto thee. The children of Israel will be punished into obedience. That's the theme throughout the prophets. That's the punishment, the oppression, the crushing, the being without means, the persecution, the, the, the being cast down that Paul talks of here. <clears throat> and also from Jeremiah chapter 50, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, The children of Israel and the children of Judah were oppressed together, and all that took them captives held them fast. They refused to let them go. Their Redeemer is strong. Yahweh of hosts is his name. He shall thoroughly plead their cause, that he may give rest to the land and disquiet the inhabitants of Babylon. And the reference to Babylon refers to Mystery Babylon, as well as to the city of antiquity. And the prophecy has a double meaning, the forthcoming fulfillment. Nevertheless, <clears throat> even before the covenant with Israel, the children of Yahweh had suffered from the beginning on account of their sin. In Hebrews chapter 11, Paul says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Further on here in this chapter, Paul will mention that same thing, the eternal and unseen rewards in which Christians of both the Old and New Testaments have hope. After mentioning that hope, the hope in things unseen in Hebrews chapter 11, 
Paul proceeds in that chapter to list many of the trials and accomplishments of the Old Testament saints, all the way back from Abel forward, considering them to be a great cloud of witnesses to the truth which is in Yahweh their God. The punishment ordained for the children of Israel was not ended with the cross of Christ. Indeed, the apostles had asked him, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 1, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? He responded by saying, It is not for you to, you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. Rather, with the spread of the gospel, those of Israel turning to Christ would be all the more oppressed, as Christ himself warns in Matthew chapter 24, referring to the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And he says, all these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. It is this oppression to which Paul alludes in the passage that follows, in verse 11. Always we who live with death are delivered for the sake of Yahshua, in order that also the life of Yahshua may be manifest in our mortal flesh. Consequently, death operates in us and life in you. But having the same spirit of the faith in accordance with that which has been written, I have believed, therefore I have spoken. We also believe, Therefore, we also speak. I'm going to talk about one slight difference in the manuscripts. The 3rd century papyri, P46, has if rather than always. The difference is only one Greek letter. Where the verse would be the verse 11 would be read, if we who live are delivered to death for the sake of Yahshua, that also the life of Yahshua may be manifest in our mortal flesh. Now, there's a grammatical problem with that reading of P46 because the conjunction Hina, which is that in the phrase, that also the life. The conjunction hina doesn't customarily answer in Greek to the word for if. The reading of the papyrus seems to reflect the idea that eternal life is granted only upon suffering for Christ. That's not what any of the other ancient manuscripts read, but that is um, an interesting diversion from the texts. In verse 13, Paul quotes from Psalm 116, from verse 10, 
And the passage is a messianic prophecy, which also forebodes the fate of those who are loyal to God and who convey his truths. That's what Paul is quoting here from verse 9 of the psalm. I will walk before Yahweh in the land of the living. I believed, therefore have I spoken. I was greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. What shall I render unto Yahweh for all his benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of Yahweh. I will pay my vows unto Yahweh now in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of Yahweh is the death of his saints, ostensibly because even being dead in the flesh, they live in the spirit. Because knowing, 2 Corinthians 4.14, because knowing that he who raised Prince Yahshua will also raise us with Yahshua and will be present with you. Raise us with Yahshua. That gives me an opportunity to make a digression about soul sleep. The people that believe in what is called soul sleep, in my opinion, fall short because they impose the concept of time in the physical world. They impose that restriction to the spiritual world. We cannot take it for granted that the spiritual world and the world of God, who transcends his creation, who exists outside of his creation, we cannot imagine that our concept of physical time here on earth in the physical world can govern God and the spiritual world. So that's a, a, a what I believe is a um, something that the people that believe in soul sleep actually totally miss. As it is promised to Israel in Hosea chapter 13, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plague. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. As it is described in the revelation of Yahshua Christ, before the description of the city of God descended from heaven, hell and death are already cast into the lake of fire. Furthermore, if Paul says, Yahshua, will be present with you. And if our Adamic bodies are our earthly tabernacles, then his Adamic body must be the tabernacle of Yahweh, 
which is mentioned in places such as Ezekiel chapter 37. As the word of Yahweh says in reference to himself, my tabernacle also shall be with them. Yeah, I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and the nation shall know that I, Yahweh, do sanctify Israel. When my sanctuary, another reference to that fleshly body, when my sanctuary, when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. 2 Corinthians 4.15 All things are for the sake of you, in order that the favor abounding over the greater number would exceed the thankfulness to the honor of Yahweh. All things in Scripture are for the sake of the children of Israel, and Paul establishes here, and throughout his first epistle to the Corinthians, that he is indeed speaking to Israelites of the ancient dispersions. Here Paul seems to be saying that the children of Israel cannot possibly be thankful enough for the magnitude of the favor of God which is bestowed upon them. As we have just cited Ezekiel, where Yahweh spoke of dwelling with his people. So it says in Revelation chapter 21, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new, reading the King James Version. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Revelation 21.5 is a citation of Isaiah 48.19, and Paul also cites that passage here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. In Isaiah 48, Yahweh is also addressing the children of Israel. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall ye not know of it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field shall honor me, the dragons and the owls, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. Even the beasts and the dragons and the owls benefit from Yahweh's blessing, the children of Israel, not that they should. This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. But thou hast not called upon me, O Jacob. But thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. And in verse 25, I, even I, am he that blots out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember 
thy sins. The Christian civilization of Europe, after Israel had traveled through the wilderness, is the new thing that Yahweh made. From Psalm 142, where prison is a euphemism for death, as the Apostle Peter later used the term in his second epistle, and this is also a messianic prophecy. I cried unto thee, O Yahweh. I said, Thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Attend unto my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from, from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise thy name. The righteous shall compass me about, for thou shalt deal bountifully with me. Paul says in verse 16, On which account we do not falter, rather than if our outer man is being destroyed then our inner is being restored day by day. Here Paul is evidently using the terms outer man and inner man as analogies for the fleshly body and the spiritual body. The outer man is the fleshly Adamic body, and the inner man is the treasure in earthen vessels, which Paul describes here, which the enemies of Christ cannot destroy. This interpretation is substantiated not only in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but in Paul's prayer contained in Ephesians chapter 3, where he says from verse 14, from the King James Version, for this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family, a reference to Israel, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. The Spirit of Yahweh instilled within the Adamic race is what Paul means when he refers to the inner man. When those who bear it are obedient to God in Christ, the Holy Spirit also takes up his abode with them 
as Christ explains in John 14:23. If a man loves me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. 2 Corinthians 4.17 For the present lightness of our tribulation and exceedingly surpassing eternal abundance of honor is earned by us. The word present is from the Greek word parotica, which only appears here in the New Testament. The Dellen Scott define it in part as present or momentary. The King James Version translators made an entire clause from this one word where they have, which is but for a moment. The Apostle Peter, in the opening chapter of his first epistle, had summarized the same things which Paul relates to the Corinthians here, where he says, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found under praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom not having seen you love, in whom, though now ye see him not yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the, the, the purpose of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Christians should expect to undergo trials in this life. And those Christians who do undergo trials in this life should not blame God. Christians should expect to undergo trials in this life and await their rewards for the next. That is the foundation of Christian faith. If Christians seem to be rewarded in this life, that too is a trial, even if perhaps, at least temporarily, it's a more comfortable one, it is still a trial. In that same chapter of his epistle, Peter goes on to say, of which the salvation, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. If the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets, then Yahweh and Christ are the same. Everywhere that the prophets themselves are inquired of, these things are only promised through Christ to the children of Israel. So Peter must have been speaking to the dispersed children of Israel, not to Jews, and not to Gentiles. The seed of Abraham, through Isaac and Jacob, 
Israel according to the flesh. They were pagans at this time. There is nowhere in Scripture where these promises are made to anyone but the children of Israel, and it is an endeavor to defraud God today. If we imagine that any of these things could have been transferred to anyone other than the actual genetic children of Israel. Verse 18. We, not considering the things being seen, but the things not being seen, the things being seen, temporary, but the things not being seen, eternal. As Paul said in his epistle to the Hebrews, in the opening verse of chapter 11, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Paul had also told the Romans, in his opening chapter of his epistle to them, where he was speaking of men who had abandoned God, that they were at fault, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Men should not deny the invisible aspects of creation, which indicates that there is more to the creation of Yahweh God than we in the flesh can see and understand. Paul even said in Hebrews that the things that are made were not made from things which are visible. Paul's words concerning the unseen rewards of God and the godly life stand in stark contrast to the prevailing opinions of the time as they're described by the Greek historian Diodorus Siculus who was writing approximately a hundred years before Paul. Diodorus, who in turn was contrasting the prevailing, prevailing opinions of his time to the seemingly ascetic philosophy of Pythagoras, said, and I quote from the Loeb Library edition of Diodorus's Library of History, Book 10, Chapter 7, Diodorus said that Pythagoras urged his followers to cultivate the simple life, since extravagance, he maintained, ruins not only the fortunes of men, but their bodies as well. For most diseases he held come from indigestion, and indigestion in turn from extravagance. Many men were also persuaded by him to eat 
uncooked food and to drink only water all their life long in order to pursue what is in truth the good. And yet, as for the men of our day, we're one to suggest that they refrain for but a few days from one or two of the things which men consider to be pleasant. They would renounce philosophy, asserting that it would be silly while seeking for the good which is unseen to let go that which is seen. So even in the time of Diodorus Siculus, we see that men refuse to let go of the temporal pleasures of life in exchange for an unseen reward. In the opening chapter, I'm sorry, in the opening verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul once again makes an analogy in reference to the eternal spirit of man granted to the Adamic race. And he says in verse 1, Therefore we know that if perhaps our earthly house of the tabernacle would be destroyed, meaning this fleshly body, we have a building from Yahweh, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In a sort of tongue-in-cheek way, I'm mortified that some identity Christians do not grasp the implications of all this. The Adamic man has an eternal spirit granted to him from Yahweh his God. For this reason, the Christian must not fear death, but live for God in spite of the enemies of God, as Christ himself had said, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 10. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell, or in Gehenna. Only Yahweh our God has power over the body which counts, which is the spirit of the Adamic man within each of the children of Israel. Paul had said, that always we who live with death are delivered for the sake of Yahshua, in order that also the life of Yahshua may be manifest in our mortal flesh. Consequently, death operates in us and life in you. The life of Yahshua is manifest in our flesh when, seeing that Christ is an example, we lose all fear of death. We lose all concern for the rewards of this world and the comforts of this world, and we seek to love and serve our brethren rather than ourselves. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night... There is no political solution, at least not for our white Christian race. Sven Longshanks is away in the Baltic. There will be no Christian in Europe until the 29th of March. 
I will be here next Friday with 2 Corinthians Part 4. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening.